Father, I ask that as we come to your word this morning, that we, as we sit under it, uh, God, I ask that you would uh, fill us with all knowledge of your will and, and spiritual wisdom and understanding, that you would work these things out into fruit, that we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And, uh, God, I pray that you would increase our knowledge, that you would teach us this morning, that we would grow in our knowledge of you and your glory and your grace and our own sin and our need for you and for your faithfulness to us and your great electing grace this morning as we dig into first peter and in jesus name we ask amen yeah the temptation is real to spend one sermon on every word in this introduction it's incredibly profound and, and deep but I won't do that. I think in God's providence, the themes of Scripture come up again, and we'll continue to revisit each of these themes throughout First Peter. So let's stand as we read First Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen. You may be seated. This is the Word of God. So I wonder, I, I'm sure we've all been, or at least felt, ostracized at some point, felt like we don't belong, that we're not a part, uh, perhaps that uh, we're being excluded for the express reason that we are believers. I'm sure we've all felt this, this feeling of being the foreigner, the outsider. I hesitate to even bring this up because it's such a mild example compared to most Christians, but... Uh, through the 8th through 10th grade, I went to this tiny Christian school in Florence, Colorado, and it's me and one other kid in the class, Johnny B. He's a good friend. He was, he was trouble. Uh, and so we played sports for the public school, and I, and I played basketball there at Florence High School. And, and my class at Florence happened to be like the most athletic class that ever went through that school. The, the football team, football is like the god in Florence. And I didn't play football, but the football team went to state three out of the four years that we were in high school and won it twice. These guys were athletes. So I played basketball for these guys, with these guys, but I never really fit in. First of all, I was shy, (laughs) uncomfortable. Secondly, I didn't play football, which, like I said, was the god there in Florence. Also, I didn't go to school with them. I, I just showed up, and I was this weird kid from the Christian school who showed up to play basketball. You know, it was kind of that, that awkward. Um, they knew I was a Christian. Maybe they just kind of they, they kind of thought I was this strange outsider. And while they all sort of, you know, they're swearing and telling disgusting stories of their exploits, I sat quietly and uncomfortably. And not only that, they knew I was a preacher's kid. I remember one time one kid said to the, another one, you know, his dad's a priest. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true in a sense. 
So it, it's hard, especially at that age, to feel like the outsider, to feel like an alien in a, in a context. You know, we want to be accepted, we want to be a part, we want to be liked or even popular. We don't want to be maligned or thought strange or unusual or to be misre- misrepresented. Like I said, my experience is mild compared to most Christians throughout history, certainly mild compared to what the people that, for, that Peter is writing to endured. And Peter here is writing to encourage these saints in the midst of, of their great trials, persecution and ostracization. They have, uh, they have much that they can hang their hats on in terms of hope is Peter's message. So Peter begins this letter with this extraordinary greeting. And in this greeting, he begins by defining their true identity, defining their identity. So I think of like children's letters, you know, with the, like the scratchy writing and like to or from Zach with like the backwards R and the from and colon from Zach to Nathan, you know, dear Nathan, hello, how are you? I am fine. Peter begins, he has a, a similar format. It's a letter, obviously more robust, but he identifies the author who is from. He identifies the audience who he's writing to. And then he extends a greeting. So first here, the author, he says that it's from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So this is Peter, uh, the rock, the the big guns apostle. Also, the Mr. Foot and Mouth apostle, the untamed zeal apostle. And also, we should remember the, the feed my sheep apostle. An apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle is somebody who's sent out. You know, we can be sent out in many ways. Somebody can be an apostle of a king, sent out from a king or from a church body, like a missionary. Uh, in a sense, we're all little apostles, sent out ones. But Peter is a fulfiller of the office of apostle, and it's important to get those two things straight. Peter is called to be a member of the original 12 apostles specifically sent out by Christ. Uh, he was sent out and commissioned you know, in the upper room. Uh, also that day on the beach with the breakfast of fish when Jesus said to him, Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. He said three times to him. Also in the Great Commission, Peter was sent out. And then at Pentecost, that was fulfilled. So Peter writes here as a messenger of Christ generally, but specifically as a man fulfilling his apostolic office bestowed on him by Christ himself. Now why, why is that important? Why does that matter to us? What's the relevance to, to the hearers then or to us now? I think at least two things. First is authority. This is no Joe Schmo dude writing this letter. This is an apostle. It's an apostolic Message. Thus, it bears the weight of the original sender, the King, Jesus Christ. Secondly, is the relationship that Peter would have to us and to his readers uh, that kind of flows from the authority. And that is, if you were in a tough position, a position of being ostracized or persecuted, and some random guy wrote you a bunch of nice things, you might, you might be grateful, but you might say, who are you, you know? 
but if someone from for whom you had a great deal of respect wrote to you, you'd probably savor every word and take it all to heart. And I suppose that's what the original hearers did, and that's what we should do with First Peter as well. Taking it as a message from Jesus Christ delivered through the pen and through the experience of, of Peter. Now if we recall kind of our little kid letter, we have the from, from Peter. Now who is he writing to? Who's his audience? He says, To those who are in elect who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So who who are these people? The first thing we notice is that they are elect. And we'll get into that in much more detail in a moment. The second thing we notice is that he says they are exiles. The NASB says that they are those who reside as aliens. Other translations are pilgrims, strangers, sojourners. Uh, One lexicon says that this word is one who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there by the side of the natives, hence a stranger, sojourning in a strange place, a foreigner. So these folks are, in some sense, somewhere that they don't come from. They are outsiders. They're not in their own homeland. And the question is, is Peter here speaking metaphorically or is he speaking literally? Are they strangers only in the sense of, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through? And indeed, of course, the Bible speaks that way of Christians. In fact, Peter speaks that way later in the book. Or, on the other hand, are they actually uh, aliens residing in a land which is not their physical homeland? And to me, this question is answered by what Peter says next. He says, he speaks in very concrete, physical, geographical terms. They're, they're elect exiles of the dispersion, a specific event in a specific place, Pontia, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is a very tangible, earthy, human way of speaking. So to me, it would seem odd to speak that way, while also at the same time employing metaphor. That's not to say that if he's speaking in, in in these terms that we are not aliens in the other sense. But. So the next question, if it's not metaphor, who are these people and why are they dispersed? Where, where did they come from? Calvin believes that they were Jews scattered throughout the land as a result of their disobedience. God drove them out of the promised land. Uh, this, this interpretation is, is plausible. You know, the scattering of the Jews is often called the despora or the dispersion of the Jews. Peter was also, by his own admission, the, the apostle to the Jews primarily. However, here to me it seems a little odd that, that Peter would write only to Jewish Christians where in a Gentile context where surely their churches, their fellowships would have been a mixed group. Also, it's notable that this region he's speaking to is, is nearly the size of California. This is not like to the Church of Corinth. This is a big, wide region. It seems odd, first of all, that the, uh, secondly, that his letters he, later on will condemn activities that are kind of 
Gentile in nature. They don't seem very Jewish, although they could have picked up those habits. Uh, the most plausible explanation I've heard is, is a theory, which it's only a theory, I think we can't know for sure, which points us to historical evidence. Rome would conquer places and then colonize those places. And one way they did that was to transplant people from metropolitan areas to these uh, colonies. And a, a convenient uh, bonus to that is you could take people you don't like, <laughs> Jews and Christians, for example, and send them away. You know, we don't like these people in Rome. We're going to make a colony out of 300 Jews or Christians. And history actually shows that Rome was setting up colonies in these very regions that Peter describes at this time. Additionally, history suggests to us that Peter was in Rome at the end of his life and in fact died there. So the theory goes, and again it's only a theory, that Peter went to Rome, was acquainted with these Christians, and they were dispersed. They were sent to these colonies. And so he's familiar with them. He knows them and he knows their challenges and he's writing to encourage them. It's a theory, a good theory in my mind. If you disagree, that's fine. Uh, but to my mind, it makes sense both of the internal and external data. So no matter which, which view we take, what we have to say is these people are in a difficult and foreign environment. These people who are, they're likely ostracized. They're people who don't belong where they are, probably dealing with this unfamiliarity and certainly dealing with some measure of uh, direct persecution for their faith. All of which makes that first designation that we skipped over all the more important. That they're elect. Before man, before the world, these people are they're foreigners. They're outcasts. But in Peter's estimation, and in the estimation, the sight of God, these people are elect. And what a gift that is to start out the letter that way to these people. What a kind mercy that right off the bat Peter calls attention to these suffering Christians that they are elect. What a sense of purpose that gives them and gives us. Peter recognizes the plight of his audience. He calls them elect exiles of the dispersion. But then he goes on to give them this name, this identity. He describes their identity that they are not just those odd Christians, those odd foreigners. They are the elect exiles of the dispersion. Election becomes kind of this, this hot-button issue in, in larger Christian circles. And the focus of the debate is nearly always centered around the fairness of God in choosing some for salvation and not others. We end up kind of in this defending God, this theodicy in our conversations. And indeed we need to do that because it is fair, it is just. But how often is this element of election brought up? I have to say, I don't usually think of it in these terms. I can't help but wonder what would happen if we spoke about election in terms of identity in a confused world rather than this theoretical, difficult, philosophical subject. So I wonder, next time we're engaged in discussion and the doctrine of election comes up, what if we don't automatically jump into theodicy defending God's sovereignty in his actions, which we should and can do, what if instead the doctrine of election 
was moved in our own minds from that compartment that contains kind of the intellectual puzzles into the compartment of doxology and praise. I wonder how our friends and family would respond if we said, you know, in the face of all this uncertainty of life, this I know, I am an elect person of God. That would be an interesting experiment, wouldn't it? If we engaged in that type of conversation. We would... We should delight in our election. It should be a significant part of our identity. Part of what formed the identity of Peter's audience was that they were foreigners. They were exiles of this dispersion. But before any of those identifying markers, which they hold, they are elect. So amidst all these identities that we could latch onto in our lives... Let us not neglect this great comfort and joy of being identified as members of God's elect people. Peter goes on here in verse 2 to kind of further ground our election, and he does so, he grounds it in the persons and work of the Trinity. Verse 2, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. So what what here? It says, it begins according. What is according to the foreknowledge of the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit? Spirit. If you have an NASB or a New King James or something, you'll have noticed that they move that word elect from the beginning of verse 1 to the end of verse 1 or the beginning of verse 2 to make the connection clear that these things refer to election. It's our election which is described here. The first thing we're told about our election is that it is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I don't know about you, but I I like security. I like a solid place to stand. <clears throat> doesn't it comfort your soul to know that there's no that there that the, oh there is the, so much uncertainty so much falsehood so much change that God's decree is eternal and unchanging that encourages me John Murray says it beautifully in redemption accomplished and applied he says when God calls men and women speaking of the effectual call not the general call it is not the moment of haphazard, arbitrary, sudden decision. God's thought has been occupied with this event from times eternal. Hence the moment and all the circumstances are fixed by His own counsel and will. In other words, at no moment in time did God decide to save us. There was never a time when God's mind did not contain the plan of salvation. Ours is an election and a redemption plan based on a plan that has always been and always will be. <clears throat> Murray goes on here to ask a wonderful question that we should ask ourselves. Have we sufficiently entertained the marvel that God's thought and interest and purpose have been occupied from eternity with the grace which is actually bestowed in time? So if you haven't, which I don't know if we can ever exhaust such a question, but I encourage you to spend time entertaining that very question. 
We talk about shoring up our faith in the midst of shaky and uncertain circumstances. Ponder the reality that our faith is inextricably tied and flows out from the eternal decree of God. Now, of course, here it should be pointed out that to be foreknown by God is not to be foreseen by God, as some would say. God did not gaze through time and see your decision to choose Him and thereby choose you. If that was the case, Peter would have had to say, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the wise people who chose to follow God of the dispersion. The meaning of the word foreknowledge is literally literally to know beforehand, pre-knowledge. It's often been described in terms of intimate knowledge, like Adam knew Eve, and she conceived Some have even defined it as for love. God knew us and loved us in an intimate sense before all time, and thus it can be rightly said, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons. So what a a salve to the wounds of these people who are suffering difficulty and ostracization. That's a hard word to say. Dealing with this pain of of being foreigners. And Peter calls them to the security of their election based in God's intimate knowledge of them from before all time. Next here, Peter draws our attention to the work of the Spirit in election. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. So yes, our election is based in eternity past by the work of the Father, but now that our election, or now that we are in time, our election is applied by the Spirit in time to us. Now, what does he mean here? We are elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. I think the way we answer that question is to see how he's using the word sanctification here. Sanctification means to be made holy, to consecrate, be consecrated, to be set apart. And I think in this context, it's important to recognize that there's different ways this term can be used. There is progressive sanctification, which is what we usually talk about, becoming more holy, more and more holy, growing in Christ-likeness. It's a process, a slow, slow process for me. And there's also positional sanctification, and we don't talk about this one as much. It's a it's punctiliar. It's a single moment, an instantaneous event. There is a moment where we are made holy. We are set apart unto God and unto His people. We are consecrated. And then finally, there's also uh, prospective or final sanctification when those realities meet up. We finally become who we are in glory. So I believe that it's this positional sanctification that Peter refers to here. We're set apart for God, by God, before the foundations of the earth were laid. We were elected by the Father. But that election had to emerge at a single moment in time. In other words, we had to be effectually called by the Spirit of God. All of this is kind of tough to wrap our minds around, I think. And so let me just draw your attention to a few other texts that may help 
Um, Acts 26.18, Paul is recounting his conversion story before Cain and Agrippa. He tells him about God's appearing to him and how God told him that he was sending him to the Gentiles. He says, here's the purpose. I was sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Notice, they are sanctified by faith in me. It's not progressive here. They are set apart as a people of God who have faith in God. Another text here, Paul addresses the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, and uh, I believe it's chapter yeah chapter 1 in the greeting, verse 2. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So notice here, they are already those who are sanctified. He calls them saints. A saint is one who is made holy, a sanctified one. The word saint comes from the same root as sanctification or holiness, hagias. We're all saints. There's this punctiliar moment in time where at one moment we were not a saint and then we are a saint. Feel free to refer to me as Saint Zachary from now on if you want. So this this type of positional sanctification is what I believe Peter is referencing here. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me to say, you you are elect by your progressive growth in Christ. It makes much more sense to say, your eternal election finds its temporal fulfillment by the Spirit of God numbering you amongst the rest of the saints. So we should be moved at this point to a great sense of peace, even in the face of trial or uncertainty. Our eternal election, decreed by the Father before all time, has made a present, been made a present reality to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Once again, we see here that election is not some far-off, lofty, high ivory tower doctrine. It's rather a present reality and a part of the daily experience of anyone who is numbered among the saints. Anyone who is truly a Christian has seen his or her eternal election find experiential expression in conversion. So election really is an intrinsic component of the Christian's daily walk. <clears throat> so the election, effectual call of the Spirit of God is not the end of our election. To be called means that we are called unto something. Peter gives us here two things which we have been elected for or unto. First is the obedience to Jesus, and second is sprinkling with his blood. Just read verse 2 again. It says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for, or I like, unto obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. <clears throat> so I believe here that, that obedience and sprinkling with blood are tied together both linguistically and 
theologically in this text. In other words, there are two elements of the same event. Linguistically, first, because the Greek doesn't make such a strong division as other translations do. In fact, the King James Version gets it best, in my opinion. It says, We've been elected unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That doesn't make such a sharp division there. I think these two things are an allusion to Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus chapter 24, Moses and the people are at the base of Mount Sinai, and God is making a covenant with them. And it says, And Moses took half of the blood from the sacrifices and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw, I'm in verses 6 through 8, by the way, half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So do you see the allusion there, the the connection of obedience and sprinkling with blood? Now the difference, of course, between the covenant made with Israel and at, at Mount Sinai and the new covenant is the blood itself. They were sprinkled with the blood of, of oxen, of blood of sacrifices, animal sacrifices. We here are sprinkled with the blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. They at Sinai said, we will obey. And of course, they did not obey. Ezekiel 36 speaks of their, their utter failure to live up to the covenant. But then God speaks of a day when he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the new covenant. That's the new covenant in Christ's blood. Ed Clowney says, In Christ, Peter found the reality foreshadowed at Sinai. Israel miserably failed to keep their their covenant oath. The yoke of the law, Peter said himself, was one that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. But now Peter can rejoice in the new covenant. God cleanses the heart of the Jew and Gentile by faith in the sacrifice of Christ. The reality to which the prophets testified and to which all the ceremonies pointed had come at last. The outcome of our election is that we are members of the new covenant in Christ's blood. For people who are, in Peter's greeting, described as foreigners, they're dispersed, Peter gives them a, a rock, a solid rock of identity, an identity not rooted in nationality or occupation or in a family name or social status. Their identity is a Trinitarian identity. They've been elected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Their election has been applied by the consecrating work of the Spirit, and now they have been elected unto obedience of faith and the sprinkling of the new covenant sacrifice 
the blood of the Son. A view of this redemptive Trinitarian identity really does kind of serve to tarnish all potential other identities, doesn't it? I'm struck here by how profoundly deep this greeting is. I feel kind of like a a skiff floating on top of the Mariana Trench. We're just scratching the surface here. And we could spend so much more time exploring these themes. And like I said, hopefully we'll get into more of them throughout 1 Peter. And also we could go many directions in trying to apply these truths. And we've already spent some time applying them. But I'll just add a couple more points of application here before we finish up with the greeting. And the first is that Peter's, the things that Peter's audience seem to be lacking, we have. We have a strong national identity. We, by and large, have our families and friends nearby. And we, by and large, still have freedom of religious expression. And we're not really all that ostracized as Christians uh, yet. So whether in relative strife or relative comfort, it doesn't really matter. We ought always to remember that the Christian life is an alien life. All of those things, those other things can fail us. Our family can fail us. Our nation can fail us. But our sainthood will never wear out. The blood of Christ can never be washed off of us. So let's be wary in a time of place of relative ease for the Christian that we don't begin to find our identity in the good gifts of God. Stay grounded in our Trinitarian election because this is always the true identity of God's people. Second thing I want to point out is that the covenant is in fact for the people or for the church. One thing I noticed as I studied this passage that kept coming up again and again, was that it's for the people of God. God elected a people unto himself. The covenant is, uh, God covenanted to be a God to a people. The Spirit sets apart a people. The blood of the sacrifice oxen was sprinkled on the people. The blood of Christ is sprinkled on the people. Many today, I think especially in our individualistic culture, will say, oh, I love Jesus, but not the church. Well, we have to recognize that God is saving His people as a group, made up of individuals to be sure, but we, each and every one of us, as saints, are members of the assembly of the saints. So even as we find a sense of, of personal identity within the Trinitarian election, let us not lose sight that it is also a collective identity. Now, all of what Peter has said here is just this identification of his audience. But now he finally, he he gives his greeting. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This This is a simple greeting, a common for letters in that day. All of Paul's letters are very reminiscent of this greeting. Some people have made a tome out of the greeting, but I think, from my understanding, it really is very simply a greeting, like, hello. But really, what a wonderful thing to wish someone. What more could we want in this life than grace and peace, both of which come as blessings from God? 
and both of which are assured to us because we have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. Colossians 1 says, For in, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So we've caught just a, a, glimpse of, a glimpse of the depth and breadth of our identity defined in the persons and work of the Trinity, the triune God. And I have no doubt that both grace and peace are our eternal possession because of the blood of Christ, perhaps though even we have been afflicted with various trials. So may grace and peace be multiplied to you as you look to your election in the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, St. Zachary. <laughs> Thank you, St. Page. Let's turn now in our hymnals to hymn number 264. 264.